Good morning, everyone. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, uh, turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 6. I'll be picking up where Sam left off last week. It's all clear to me now, or it became clear to me yesterday, why Sam isn't here. He, uh, he has this excuse about the Shepherds Conference and being in California for a week. But I really think that he was running from this passage that I'm going to preach on today. And the reason he's running from it, because there is so much in this passage that you can't just preach it in 25 minutes or 30 minutes. And he didn't want to be that guy who talked too long. So he went all the way to California and left it to me. So that is sort of an apology. I hope you'll bear with me because this is the Word of God, and we love the Word of God, and we love to hear it preached. Uh, in, the, uh, in the interest of time, I'm not going to read the whole passage. We'll pick it up verse by verse as we go through the points. I did want to start off, though, with a, a joke I heard recently. I don't usually start uh, sermons with a joke, but this one kind of segues into what we're talking about today. It's about a salesman who, uh, he was traveling on a backcountry road, and uh, because the road was kind of bumpy, he was going kind of slow, but he noticed that there was this chicken running beside his car. And it was keeping pace with him, and he was going like 15 miles an hour. And he also noticed that this chicken had three legs. And he had never seen anything like this before. Well, neither have we. But the chicken was keeping pace, so he decided, well, let's see how fast the chicken can go. So he started speeding up. He got up to 50 miles an hour. The chicken is still keeping pace with him. And then all of a sudden, the chicken veers off and goes down a country lane to a farm. Well, the farmer just had to know what this was all about. So he backs up. He drives down the lane. He meets the farmer, and he said, I just saw the strangest thing, a three-legged chicken coming right towards your farm. And the farmer said, well, yeah, you see, we like chicken legs, and my son is a geneticist, and he developed these three-legged chickens, so my wife and I and he can all have a chicken leg when we have chicken. So the salesman says, well, what do they taste like? And the farmer says, I don't know, we never caught one. <laughs> the three-legged chicken reminded me or took me back to my childhood and the annual Sunday school picnic that our church had every summer. The whole Sunday school came out and there were games there was pie-eating contests, uh, and there was always a three-legged race. And uh, if you're not familiar with the three-legged race, uh, you pair up with someone, and your inner legs uh, are either tied together or maybe a burlap bag, uh, and then you have to race um, the others who are paired up to the finish line. And it, it needs, you need to be in sync in a three-legged race. You need to be working together in a three-legged race. You need to be like-minded. 
And you also kind of need to be the same size. So you couldn't have like this big six foot five guy and a, and a five foot person teamed up because you would never win in a three-legged race. In today's passage that we're going to get into, Paul's message to the Corinthians is likened to what would be required in a three-legged race. Today's passage, Paul is concluding Another reason why I think Sam didn't like this passage, he's running from it. He's concluding what he started back in chapter 2. This long defense, this demonstration, uh, his defense and definition of his own apostleship, his ministry, the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation, all those things I hope uh, are sounding familiar. Those are all passages that Sam preached on and how we're ministers of this new covenant. And Paul has been preparing them for his visit to them. And in his letter so far, he has carefully presented to them their believers because of God's ministry through him and his apostleship. He wants them to, uh, he wants them to love him. He wants to communicate his love for them. And God's love for them. He's deeply concerned about his relationship with them because he knows that if they reject him, they're going to reject his message. And that was the message of the gospel. Paul's message, his methods, his ministry, and the man were so intertwined that you couldn't separate them. And so to reject Paul the man would be to reject the message. He had a real heart for the church at Corinth, and uh, he knew that it, Corinth could reflect God's heart for the church. But there was a major problem that Sam has been uh, exegeting for us. Paul wanted the Corinthians to repent, to change, to have, as it were, spiritual surgery to separate from syncretism. Syncretism is a mixture of things. And what the Corinthians were in danger of mixing was the worship of the living God and the worship of idols, which was going on, uh, cultic worship, which was going on in Corinth. <clears throat> the mixture of Christ and the world, they don't go together. It was like the Corinthians had entered a three-legged race with the world as their partner. And they would eventually lose unless they changed their partner. Remember what he taught back in chapter 5, verse 17. That when we are in Christ, we are and we must be a new creation. It needs to be your priority. To be new creatures. Old things have to pass away. Old thoughts, old practices, old principles, old associations, they all pass away. All things become new. New principles, new rules, new ends, new company. And in today's passage, Paul focuses his argument. He's concluding this argument that he started back in chapter 2. And Paul gives crystal clear instructions if you look at the beginning of verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That's simple. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Simply put, no three-legged races. 
with the world. Last week, Sam preached a sermon entitled, So Great a Salvation. He discussed the urgency of salvation, the cost of faithfulness, and the danger of misplaced affections. Our passage today concludes those thoughts and concludes this whole discourse that has gone on for five chapters. With everything Paul has said along the way regarding his ministry uh, and now our new ministry, he begins with this clear instruction, actually a prohibition, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. We can't choose sin and act like it doesn't matter. We can't choose sin and act like it doesn't matter. We can't unite ourselves to those who are sinning for the very reason is, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. We are his ambassadors. We are his living epistles. For the Corinthians, you can't give assistance to those peddling false doctrine and worship and deception. By being in association with them, you become their epistles, not the epistles of Jesus Christ. Well, what about us? Same thing. Unequally yoked is actually a reference back to the book of Deuteronomy, which forbade an ox and a donkey to be yoked together and do work. That's sort of an Old Testament three-legged race. It won't work. Translated for us, those, you can't be in association with those, those to whom you have no common bond of faith. There might be other common bonds, but we're talking about the common bond of faith. Our brother, Christian Schaefer, is in boot camp right now. And I know for a fact that one of the things that he is learning in boot camp is to operate within the ranks, to stay in the ranks. They march together. They learn that there's safety in the ranks. Soldiers need to stay in their ranks. And Christian believers are also in the ranks. The local church is part of the ranks. And we need to stay in the ranks and keep those ranks strong so that we can be alert for signs of the enemy. Paul put it this way, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now this is not implying that we can have no association with unbelievers. Look at Christ's ministry. It was all of that. Think of that uh, text I preached on one time about Zacchaeus and Christ calling him. But Christ didn't set up a tax collecting booth with Zacchaeus. And Christ didn't go to Zacchaeus' house to have, because he thought he might be a fun guy to hang out with for the night. Christ was on a mission. And all of his associations were mission-related, not business, not personal, and not recreational. And Paul, in this passage, concludes all these thoughts that have been going on for so long and will explain very clearly how we should live. And I call it live by the numbers. In this passage, the numbers are five questions, one present reality, and two promises. So let's look at the five questions. Look at uh, verse 16, 14. 
after saying, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Paul begins to reason with the Corinthians regarding his prohibition to not be unequally yoked. Because they don't go together. I did a short Google search of things that don't go together. And there's probably 300 things that don't go together, or maybe more. <clears throat> I just picked a couple. Oil and water first come to mind. Orange juice and toothpaste. Bathtubs and toasters evidently don't go together. And probably all your parents here know that a foot and a Lego do not go together. Paul makes these distinctions of things that don't go together by asking five questions. He builds them to a crescendo in the fifth question. So we're going to look at these questions quickly. First question, what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? We're contrasting believers and unbelievers. How is a believer made righteous? Only through the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Righteousness is then the fruit of belief. And what comes with that is conformity to the law and freedom from the dominion of sin. And all of this produces a righteous or a good character. What's the state of the unbeliever? Well, exactly the opposite. Lawless, bound by the dominion of sin, and all of this produces a lawless and godless character. So the question is, what partnership can those who have been made righteous at such a great price and acting in righteousness have with those who are destitute of justifying righteousness, living in the dominion of sin, and behaving lawlessly? Short answer, none. What could be more different? Partnership here, that word, is more than just what binds us together as good and bad people. Because good people aren't all good, and bad people aren't all bad. What we're talking about here is a union between the two. What do the two uniquely have in common? Can there be a partnership between unbelievers and believers? Can there be a union between them? One of the most intimate things that the body of Christ does is what we're doing here now, worshiping together. It's the most intimate thing that we do. Can there be a partnership between the worship of the triune God and cultic worship? Well, no, duh. That's basically what you can hear Paul saying. That was the issue there. So Paul says, well, let me ask you another question to make it a little clearer. What fellowship has light with darkness? Light in the Bible is always a symbol of knowledge, of holiness, of blessedness, and enlightenment. In other words, those with Christ. 
Ephesians 5.8 says, You were once in darkness, but now you are light in Christ. We have become enlightened to the glory of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the fullness of Christ, the work of the Holy Spirit. We have become enlightened to the word and to grace and to mercy. According to 1 Thessalonians 5.15, we are the children of light and not of the darkness. Darkness in the Bible is the opposite. It's always a symbol of ignorance and foolishness and those taken captive by deception of the world. Error, sin, misery, ignorant of Christ, ignorant of salvation, ignorant of the work of the Spirit, ignorant of the Word, ignorant of grace and mercy. So Paul asks again, what fellowship has light, the children of the living God, with darkness, those taken captive by the deception of the world? Short answer, none. What could be more different? Fellowship here means participation with or union with to such a degree that what is true of one is true of the other. We're going to capture this definition and use it later on. True fellowship is described as what is true of one is true of the other. So that we enjoy true fellowship as believers. We recognize that we have a joint interest in the benefits of redemption, all of us. And we're conscious that the inner experience of one is the same as the other. Incongruous elements cannot be united. Any attempt to unite them alters the character of one or the other. For the Corinthians, Paul was saying, believers cannot and must not have fellowship at the most characteristic moment of unbelief, the worship of other gods, small g. For us, the most characteristic moments of unbelief are multitude in our world. There's plenty of opportunities, but the underlying commonality is sin. And Paul's against it. God's against it. We at New Hope here are against it. We're against sin. Duh. So Paul isn't finished, though. He asks another question. What accord does Christ have with Belial? Behuel? I'll get to Belial in a minute. Christ is the living God manifest in the flesh, full of grace and truth. Read John chapter 1 for that. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, Christ is the eternal Son of God, the only mediator between God and man, Savior, Anointed One, Prophet, Priest, King, fullness of all joy, glory, and power with all authority in heaven and on earth. That's Christ. Belial, no one really knows why Paul chose this word, Belial. It's actually an abstract noun that means worthlessness. Or sometimes in the Old Testament, it meant wickedness or evil. It can also mean destroyer or wicked one. So let's put that all together. 
and see what we have a definition of. Worthless, evil, wicked, destroyer. Sounds like a good description of Satan, the prince of darkness. So Paul asks, what accord can there be between Christ and Belial? Short answer, none. What could be more different? Now, accord here, that word, is not a model of Honda, as in the car the disciples drove when it was said that they all left in one accord. That's my sense of humor. Accord is a word for harmony, for sympathy, for unison, like an orchestra playing chords in perfect union and harmony. Christ and Satan, I'm getting a picture here. I'm not sure Paul was ever at one, but Christ and Satan together are worse than the first fourth grade orchestra performance your kid was ever in. If, uh, if your kids aren't in first, fourth grade yet, just wait. But it's even stronger than that. It's like a professional orchestra, orchestra playing discordant and jarring sounds. For the Corinthians, Paul asks, can you harmonize the worship of Christ with the worship of Satan? Answer, a resounding no. You can't harmonize that. How could you even think of that? Now, Paul is heading somewhere with these questions. And so he asks a fourth question. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? A believer, simply put, is one who belongs to Christ and enjoys fellowship and the communion and the community of believers that we enjoy here. An unbeliever has no attachment to Christ, is outside the true fellowship of God, and living for Belial. We're not implying here the severance of all social relationships with unbelievers. That wouldn't even make sense in the context of the Bible. But the context in this passage is not social associations. It's a community of believers in worship versus the cultic worship that was going on in Corinth. The two do not and cannot go together. The word portion here, as in what portion, is a share, a part, a participation. The same contrast that has been in the previous three questions. And Paul demands absolute separation because the two are governed by two completely set, set of principles, uh, worldviews, operating systems. Remember, true fellowship, true fellowship or participation or portion requires that what can be said of one can be said of the other. So Paul asks, what portion does a believer have with an unbeliever? What share? What fellowship? Short answer, none. What could be more different? True fellowship is for those who all agree about the person and the work of Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. So the climax of Paul's questioning leads to the point at which he's been heading all along. 
and will be supported by the verses following that. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Idols signifies idolatry, which is the worship of idols going on in Corinth. Idols is abhorrent. Idolatry is abhorrent to God. It was abhorrent to Paul. And if we had idols here, it would be abhorrent to us too. But we do have idols, don't we? Turning from idols, whatever they may be, is fundamental to the proclamation of the gospel. You can't receive the gospel unless you turn away from idols. And failure to turn from them is as verse 1 of this chapter states, receiving the grace of God in vain. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? Short answer, none. What could be more different? Paul is exhorting the Corinthians to separate from those things that are detestable to the Lord. In short, the sinful world. There is to be no fellowship, no share, no participation, no union, no partnership, no agreement, period. Enough said. In fact, that's what I was going to entitle this, Paul's conclusion. Enough said. Be separate. The reason, though, for the five questions, other than the obvious ones we discussed, is the one present reality at work here, and that's our second point. The one present reality, still in verse uh, 16. After Paul asks the fifth question, what agreement has the temple of the living God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. We are the temple of the living God. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. One present reality. The word for there draws to a conclusion the five questions and the true reasoning behind it all. And this is the part that we come in and really can capture. He says, you are the temple of the living God. You are the temple of the living God. God's spirit dwells in you. There can no, be no agreement between you as the temple of the living God, the one with the beauty of the indwelling Christ and his spirit, and anything contrary to that. Paul makes clear he was talking about them, the Corinthians, as people, and not a temple of bricks and mortar. You are the temple of the living God. He's making a distinction. Peter made a similar word picture by stating that believers are living stones being built up into a spiritual house. There's some good theology here. All throughout this text, there's probably 12 different theological concepts that we could preach a whole sermon on. You have the spirit, and as God dwells in us, you possess a spirit of renewal, of regeneration, of sanctification, of faith, and adoption, and as a pledge of a guarantee of future glory. That 
is the whole order of salvation summed up in one sentence. You are the temple of the living God. You have the spirit dwelling in you, and so you possess that spirit of renewal, regeneration, sanctification, faith, and adoption, and hope and promise of future glory. But before we look ahead to future glory, which Paul doesn't do in this passage, he looks back. He has been doing this throughout the whole book of Corinthians. First, when he talked about his own apostleship and legitimacy, but more importantly, he has been demonstrating that the proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation, the coming of the Messiah, the indwelling of the Spirit, are all evidence, evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises made long ago. The proclamation of the gospel, the ministry of reconciliation, the coming of the Messiah, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit are all evidence of God's faithfulness to his covenantal promises that he made long ago. I'm going to say amen to that. Paul made it clear way back in chapter 1 that the coming of the Spirit confirmed Paul's message to them as true, and it affirmed them as people of God. The Spirit who changes hearts, the Corinthians' hearts, and our hearts is the God-given blessing of the new covenant, long promised, long ago promised by the prophets in the Old Testament and reviewed in chapter 3. All of the blessings that we enjoy are as a result of the arrival at a time in history, a time of God's favor. The day of salvation, last week's message, so great a salvation. And finally, with the coming of Christ, his death and glorious resurrection, the subsequent ministry of the gospel, and the apostles' ministry of reconciliation, and now our ministry of reconciliation, he is saying the day of salvation has come. The not yet time is now the now time, the new time. It has arrived. Paul was explaining to them that the fulfillment of these covenantal promises, the believers in Corinth are deemed the people of God. Because God is faithful to all those promises made so long ago, the Corinthians are the people of the Spirit. And it's at this nexus or connecting point where temple meets idols that the challenge to compromise and try to mesh the two causes so much pain. It was very real for the Corinthians, and Paul was afraid that the Corinthians would succumb to its dangers, misplaced affections. And the question for us is, are you? Are you at a nexus or a connecting point where you are trying to mesh the things of the living God with the things of the world? They are, Paul says, to the Corinthians, the temple of the living God in a city given to worship of idols in Gentile temples. We are the temple of the living God in a world given to worship of idols everywhere. The five questions and the one present reality were not just for Corinth. 
Paul adapts the second part of verse 16 from the words of Leviticus 26, 11, and 12. The context of Leviticus 26 is that obedience brings blessing. I will make my dwelling. In Hebrew, I will tabernacle among you and have union. I will walk among you. I will be your God and you will be my people. Live, walk, and be your God. That's what Paul's saying. Live, walk, and be your God. That was the promise made back in Leviticus, that he would live, walk, and be our God. And the point that Paul has been driving to is that this prophecy made way back in Leviticus and carried through the Old Testament is now fulfilled, Corinthians. It is fulfilled with the Corinthians receiving the word of God, the gospel, and God anointing them with the Spirit. In short, promise made, promise kept. Corinthians, God is living. His presence is real among you. He's walking. He's in communion with you. And he has become your God. You have received grace and mercy through his son, Jesus Christ. You are the present reality of what the Old Testament foresaw, foresaw and pointed to. And new hope, God is living. God is living in us. God is walking among us. We are in communion with him. And God has become our God through his grace and mercy. So you are also the present reality of an Old Testament prophecy made long ago. God is faithful. God is true. God's promises are guaranteed. And God's people continue from the time the covenant was made all the way through the Bible until now to the present. We and God requires that we separate as his temple, as his temple people, from the defilement of the world's idols. And he will declare this with clear instructions and two promises. And two promises is our third point. Two promises. Look at verse 17. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Go out and be separated. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Before we get to the promises, we need to see Paul's clear instructions to the Corinthians believers. Based on one present reality, that the Spirit of God indwells us, that we are the temple of the living God at play here, Paul directs them to do two things. Go out from their midst and be separate. Verse 17 is another quote from an Old Testament prophet, Isaiah. I'll call it a free quotation of Isaiah 52, verses 11 and 12. In the context of Isaiah is that he was, uh, Israel was leaving the exile in Babylon. And they were to leave without defiling themselves in any way. Foremost, though, they were to leave because, believe it or not, some wanted to stay 
in Babylon. Heathen life, worship, and the culture in Corinth had the danger of contaminating them with regard to false teachers, with regard to worship of idols. Get out and stay out. That's what Paul is saying. Get out and stay out. How many here have been asked the question, why, within the last day? Nobody? I'm assuming some of you have. I would uh, venture to say that if you've been asked the question, why, a number of times, that your inquisitor is very young. I know that uh, my grandson, Theo, can ask an eternal loop of why questions. And uh, I always feel a little guilty by trying to end the Inquisition by just saying, because that's the way it is. Because I know five seconds later, after he processes that, he's going to ask, why? Paul calls the Corinthians throughout this book his children. And maybe that's why he has tried to be so clear as to why they should be separate. Because they are the temple of the living God. And because he is tabernacling with them. The temple is not empty. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For those two reasons, they can't just go off visiting other gods. Small g again. He is exhorting them and he is exhorting us to forsake the company, forsake the conversation, forsake the association of the world. Have no fellowship with them. Remember, true fellowship is when what can be said of one can be said of the other. So come out and be separate, Paul says, and don't touch anything. That really made me laugh in light of... Uh, the fact that I'm a germaphobe and uh, this whole coronavirus thing. Don't touch anything. I can see all kinds of contaminants in everything. In fact, I'm wondering right now as I touch this pulpit, what's here? <laughs> see, Tim touched it last. So, as soon as... Uh, when we're at a restaurant, as soon as we've ordered the food and the, rest, and the menus are taken away, we break out the hand sanitizer because those menus have got to be the most germ-filled things there are. That's just the way we think. Don't touch anything, Paul is saying. Don't dabble in these things. Touching involves participation, and it contaminates. The message of verse 14, to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, is crystal clear and now well supported by Paul. So he continues that for obedience to this prohibition, there are two promises. And those two promises are in the second half of 17. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me. Two promises. The first promise is, I will receive you. I will welcome you. 
And we have a free quotation from another prophet. That's the prophet Ezekiel, who is also speaking about coming out of the exile of Babylon. And if the people did come out, God is promising that they, he will welcome them. Think of it this way. You are being summoned, as like a court would do. You are being summoned by God. You are hearing the gospel today to come out and to be separate. <clears throat> what are you being summoned from? I, I can't answer that in your life. What are you being summoned from? What are you to come out and be separate from? This is, this is the gospel, but it's, it's not a call to salvation in this context. Paul was speaking to believers. Our salvation is secure in Christ, even the black backsliders. My sense for the Corinthians here is that separating themselves from the cultic worship of idols and from uh, unbelievers in uh, Corinth could have consequences. Potentially expose them to, we would call it bullying or resentment or being put down or even persecuted because they wouldn't participate. The time is coming. It's fast coming. It, it's actually here. When taking a stand for purity will have very real and negative consequences. Just this week I heard uh, that uh, Franklin Graham, the, the son of Billy Graham, is planning evangelistic tours in Europe uh, later on this year. And one by one, the stadiums that he has contracted with to hold these evangelistic tours are canceling the contracts. Why? Because of his stance on the moral revolution of the LGBTQ community. When persecution comes, Paul is telling us, we can take heart in this promise of God. I will receive you. I will welcome you. I will put a hedge of protection around you. And secondly, he promises, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters. Again, that's covenantal language. That's language from the Old Testament. That's promises from Abraham through Moses, through all the prophets, and to today. It has always been. This book has been about God redeeming a people for himself through Jesus Christ and that he would then receive us, welcome us, and be our father and we his children. All the way back to chapter 1 verse 2 of this book, we see God as our father. So the Corinthians and really all of God's children at every time and place must, must, must live consistently as sons and daughters of Christ. No touching, no dabbling, no cultic worship. We must all come out, and we must all be received by our Father. We will. Fathers protect. Fathers counsel. Fathers guide. Fathers love. Think about that, Corinthians. Think about that new hope. Your behavior. Your behavior is either a demonstration or a denial of the paternity of God. Your behavior either demonstrates God is your father or denies it. That's what Paul is putting before us. 
a paternity test for us. There's no higher honor than to be adopted into the family of God and have God as our father. This isn't exactly a gospel passage here. But the gospel is easily inserted. Do you desire today, is there someone here that desires to be a part of the family of God? To come under his protection, his guidance, his counsel, his love. To know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you will be welcomed in future glory. And that you can be a part of his blessed community, which is called the church. Do you want it? There may be someone here who does. I know there are many here, including myself, who would love to talk and pray with you after this service. As Sam preached so eloquently last week, may today be the day of salvation. And Paul goes on to say how this clear paternity test is lived. And we'll close by looking at verse 1 of chapter 7. Since we have these promises, Paul is saying, since we have these promises, I will welcome you and you will be my fa- I will be your father. We must strive for purity and holiness. Think about all the covenantal or collateral promises that have been given besides these two that God will walk among us, that we will be in communion with him, that he dwells in his church, that he's our God, that he's our father, that he indwells us, that he blesses us, that he gives us grace, that he gives us mercy. Those are all promises of God that we get. Paul just offers two to them. They are all promises made and fulfilled, all absolutes. In the Old Testament, they hoped we have. Therefore, the question is, Will it be pure or will it be profane? That's the basic question of this text. Paul's argument is based solely on the actions of Almighty God fulfilling his promises. We are to cleanse ourselves from those things that defile and do it in body and spirit, verse 1 says. What does that mean? Totally. All of us. He desires to father us and to be our God. The Bible as a whole, and particularly in this passage, is not a long list of do's and don'ts. Don't let anyone tell you that the Bible is all just a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's not. The Bible, very clearly, is a book of whys. Why? Now, I stole that from Alistair Begg but I really liked it. Uh, The Bible is a book of whys. And Paul is demonstrating why we need to act the way we act. He desires to be our Father, our God. Purify yourselves. Cleanse yourselves in body and spirit. You see, sin is a matter of the heart. You can't just remove the physical part of sin. You need Christ. You need his Holy Spirit. Sin is a matter of the heart. That's Christ's work in us for sure. But we can rest in the fact that these promises take us back to a great declaration made in chapter 1. 
all of the promises of God find their yes, find their amen in Christ. The Christian life is a life by the numbers. Remember the five questions when considering whether to act or not. Cling to the one present reality that we are the temple of the living God. God indwells us himself. And enjoy these two promises and all the collateral promises of welcome and fatherhood. And I will end by saying yes and amen to that. Shall we pray? Father God, what a blessed passage of scripture that takes us back to a God of the covenant, both old and new. 